Hey, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we are back with Revo Talk, a podcast from Revo Track Resource Management Systems. Joining me today is my wonderful CEO and co-host, Melissa. Thanks, Hannah. I am so excited about today's guest. I cannot wait. I I am too. So we have such a brilliant and special guest for y'all today. Um, joining us today is Dr. Rolf Arif, um, who is the Assistant Professor of Journalism and Creative Media Industries at Texas Tech University. So Dr. Arif, thank you so, so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. And I do have to kind of brag on you a little bit because you do have a special connection to RevoTrack Resource Management Systems. You, um, I believe you oversaw um, Blake Bayardo, who is our VP of Marketing and Communications here at RevoTrack. You oversaw his master's thesis and y'all worked very, very closely together. So um, we are, again, we are so excited and just so grateful that you are joining us today. But um, we'll go ahead and just jump right on in. So First off, would you mind giving us um, a background of your work, um, not just in journalism, but um, your journey to make it all the way to Lubbock, Texas at Texas Tech University? Right. That's pretty exciting, right? So this question like needs so much time to answer. I would try to summarize my life. So I was born and raised in Pakistan. Um, I was born in uh, at a place that was like southern part of Pakistan, South Punjab. Uh, my my parents migrated from India like in 1947 during during the partition of South Asian region. They did not have enough opportunity to continue their higher education, so they wanted uh, to make sure that that their kids uh, get all the opportunity to get higher education. So like getting education was not a right for me; rather, it was a privilege because so many people could not afford it, right? So my parents had to sacrifice a lot. So I feel so honored uh, and happy that I was able to continue that track. So at some point in my life, dealing with uh, with some ups and downs of, of life and like um, looking at governmental policies and uh, laws and regulations, how they impacted average person's life, I started realizing that if something is not right, people need to speak up in order to change those things in their lives. And that was a realization like quite early in my in my like career. I, I shouldn't say career, as a student, right? So at some point I started realizing probably I need to join journalism because to me, that was the best area where I could speak my heart for my rights and for, for other people who are disadvantaged communities in the society. And talking about Pakistan, it's it's not a rich country, right? It's a developing world. So many problems related to health, education, like poverty, corruption, all of those things. Like it's like it's a whole baggage. So that gave me a reason to join like a, a journalism as a field. So I ended up getting my first master's degree from Pakistan, and I joined um, a newspaper. Uh, in Pakistan, in, in, in Islamabad, that's the capital city of Pakistan. And I started working as, um, as a political correspondent for that country, uh, for that particular newspaper for around five years. From there, I switched to electronic media and broadcast media. Like at some point, I realized that print media was, was still important, but it started losing its steam uh, for so many reasons. Part of the reason was like, I think 
internet started coming along and electronic media was getting popular slash social media was still like not there yet because I'm talking about 2005 when Twitter was not even there yet. Sometime in early 2006, YouTube was introduced in Pakistan. To counter YouTube effect or influence in Pakistan, our government, which was a military-led regime that time, like General Pervez Musharraf, he decided to, to give private media licenses to particularly to private TV channels. So I switched to one of the private TV channels over there. And from after working a couple of years over there, I saw CNBC television, they launched their franchise in Pakistan. So I was fortunate enough that CNBC hired me as one of their pioneer team members to establish their channel over there. So that was my journey in journalism over there. Uh, uh, worked in different fields like education, healthcare, and of course, politics. And then in 2007, I ended up coming to the United States uh, to take my master's degree in University of Kansas. And by the way, Hannah, stop me whenever you want to. Like as a professor, like we are being paid to just speak. No, this is absolutely, this is absolutely perfect. You are, you are, you're just brilliant. No, you're great. Okay, thank you. So I came to the U.S. And the reason I came to the U.S., I was fortunate enough to work in Pakistan uh, uh, as a stringer for the Mail on Sunday, that was a news organization located in UK, particularly based in London. And uh, at the same time, like after 9-11, I was also working with San Francisco Chronicle Journal that's, that's United States based. So one representative from the US, uh, she was covering San Francisco Chronicle Journal. She became a very good friend of mine. And another person like from the Mail on, on Sunday, Dominic Turnbull, he also became a very good friend of mine. So three of us would sit together every evening and would talk about journalism. So I would help them cover one news story. The way a San Francisco Chronicle Journal was approaching the same news story was very different as compared to the way uh, the Mail on Sunday news organization would cover. And the way I would write the same story was also very different. And that started like creating some sort of like uh, a career dilemma. Like, are we still three of us, the journalists? Why we approach the same story so much differently? And why is it so? So that at, at that time, I started realizing that I need to go uh, beyond my home country and learn about journalism practices in Western society. So that was the urge to come to the U.S. So CNBC was. Um, was very supportive of my uh, of my plans. Uh, they let me take a leave for two years, and my agenda was to come to the U.S., spend two years, learn more about journalism practices in the West, and go back and join CNBC. So I came to the U.S. in 2007 and finished my degree in 2009 and went back, in fact, uh, to to continue working with CNBC while I joined CNBC. Uh, I remember one of my former professors from Kansas University, he kept bugging me like, you need to come back. The research area that you are doing, not many people know about that research area. Not many people know about journalism in Pakistan. And not many people are aware that how September 11, the, the saddest uh, events in, in our recent history, uh, reshaped journalism. And he said, like, you need to come back. So long story short, I asked them, like, hey, can you give me five more years of leave and they said no thank you very much so they were already like gracious enough to give me like two years and like five years is, is a long stretch 
So I resigned from my position and joined the University of Iowa. And after I took my doctorate, here I am, I don't realize how quickly time flies. But I can tell, like, higher education is just like French fries. You just cannot afford to have only one, right? So that's my journey. Yeah, and and, and I, you are such an eloquent speaker and a and a wonderful storyteller. And I can only imagine how much journalism has really, because um, because you 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 mentioned that you were in print media and then you made the um, the transition into uh, broadcast media, which you do. You have to be a storyteller and you have to be able to um, tell a story in a compelling way. So, how do you think that your training? Um, or not even just your training, your experience um, transitioned into you being such a brilliant professor and a brilliant lecturer right now. Yeah, so I think when I go to the classrooms, my professional experience shaped my research and my research and professional experience shapes me being a teacher, me being an instructor or a professor. So every time I walk into a classroom, my any of my classrooms, I carry experiences from my real life. And then I also carry experiences from my research. And I combine both. Because at the end of the day, this is the greatest service to educate our, our younger generations, right? To share what we have so that they can they can find a better foundation and go beyond than experiences and experimenting what we have experienced or experimented. For example, like I have a good amount of like successful career. And uh, when I go to my classroom, I usually don't start what I achieved because I think that's not very important. I usually tell my students what I what what I could not achieve or what did I do wrong. So so that like whatever my mistakes were, my students learn from my mistakes and they move beyond those mistakes. They should commit new mistakes, right? And learn from those, but should not be repeating those mistakes again, right? So in a way, like I see that my professional experience and my current research and my, my academic practices as a professor, they all are related. I cannot see them in isolation. For example, when I came to the United States uh, to take my master's, my thesis was about journalism practices in Pakistan after 9-11 and how Terrorism in itself became a separate beat. There was no such thing as a beat, like journalistic beat. And plus, like all of those things that we used to cover after 9-11 in journalism practices, they were they were influenced by terrorism. I remember like cricket is a big deal between Pakistan and uh, and, and and several other countries. Uh, it's our version of like American football over there, right? So we go crazy about cricket. So I remember like even cricket as a sports, uh, any news story that that people would cover, they would start adding terrorist element. Is it going to be safe to go and watch cricket? Is it going to be safe for, for foreign player, players to come to Pakistan 
and play cricket, right? So everything was influenced by terrorism. And so Western media was covering war against terrorism in Afghanistan and alongside the borders of Pakistan. But they are not talking, they were not talking about how it is actually reshaping the society itself in Pakistan. So I told my professors here, hey, I want to do research in this area. I want to make sure I learn for myself. That's first thing. Also, my colleagues also learn from my work as well. So, and that's how like I ended up doing my research in that area. Uh, when I went to University of Iowa, and I will hold on to that story because that relates to my dissertation and my current work. Uh, I had a very kind of like uh, set idea or ideology that I would continue my research about terrorism and its um, correlation with journalism practices in Pakistan and probably some other countries of the world. So, yeah, I, I think my, my answer is I, I cannot isolate myself being a professor, being a researcher and being a professional or former journalist, because I think I'm a combination of three of those three of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, you know, thanks so much for, for sharing, you know, your, your experiences and in, in your life journey. And so, you know, I, I, I don't know much about you, but I do know that um, you've done a lot of research in um, around social media. So, so do you mind kind of talking a little bit about, you know, some of your research um, on social media? Yeah. Thank you very much, Melissa. And by the way, this question came right in time because when I joined University of Iowa, I was still working on September 11, terrorism and journalistic practices. And I had finished most of my coursework. Um, I was getting ready to write my dissertation proposal and stuff. And I, in fact, I wrote one of my dissertation proposals, very focused about Pakistan, terrorism, and all of those things and, journal and journalistic problems over there. Until I saw an image that was floating on social media. And that image was about a Tunisian man. He was like, uh, like the, the caption, some caption was somewhat similar to like a Tunisian burning man on streets. So it was like, so the guy, his, his name was Muhammad Bau Azizi. And it is, um, it is the story when Arab Spring started unfolded. Uh, it was 2010. This image was of a like okay let me give you like a little bit background of that so this tunisian young guy he was the vegetable seller um who who was the only breadwinner or bread earner for uh, for his entire family so because of police corruption he had to pay a lot of bribe to 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 take his vegetable cart in the market once he could not pay the bribe and cops, they, they, they took away all of his belongings. So he could not find justice anywhere. And he ended up uh, dousing himself with gasoline, set himself alight, and burned himself, like committed suicide. And once it happened in Tunisia, and by the way, such kind of examples were not new in Tunisia. Somebody with their smartphone, they actually recorded this entire episode, right? And they uploaded this app, this entire scene on, on YouTube slash Facebook, Facebook. And then that also got like kind of like disseminated by Twitter. So I, I was sitting in, in my office in University of Iowa. Once I saw that image, that bothered me a lot. That night I could not sleep. Literally, I could not sleep. 
I was so restless. Like, why certain things still happen? And how powerful that image was. The very next day, I woke up and I went back to my my dissertation advisor. I told my professor, um, I don't want to do what I came here to do. I would rather want to study this particular image, right? Because that image had a connection with Arab Spring. Arab Spring started unfolding during that time. Uh, social movement in Tunisia had started already. So once I changed my topic and I started studying that particular image, I started realizing that the amplification of that image or the amplification of that story took place because of social media. If there were no social media in Tunisia, that, that man would still not be here among us, but nobody would know. I'm sure there had been so many sur- such examples, but it was because of the power of social media because the entire uh, entire traditional media was already state-run. That was under the, under state control, right? Until their president, Zainul Abedin, realized that it was because of social media that his 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 uh, uh, his control over the power was was in trouble. It was already too late for him because this social movement became global movement. It was not only Tunisian social movement. So, like, I switched my area of interest from just traditional journalism to social media because of that. And I made it my dissertation. So I studied uh, Egypt because Arab Spring from Tunisia went to Egypt, right? And I studied Pakistan as well. So I studied three countries, all of these three countries, their recent social movements and how YouTube and other social media tools were utilized to to ignite and sustain those social movements. Because what happens, most of these countries, it's not something that these countries are going through such kind kind of like uh, political activisms like recently, but not having an avenue to be able to tell their stories and share their stories, all of those political activisms would die down. But for the very first time, because of the power of social media, those political activisms, when they started, they were able to sustain themselves because their story was uh, was getting amplified around the world. And that changes everything. And that's how like social media is such a powerful tool. The more I study it, the more I'm impressed and I'm surprised at the same time. Uh, the kind of power we have in 21st century uh, in our hands it's just remarkable. We did not see any such powerful communicative mechanism or tool uh, that is reshaping and redefining uh, how human beings behave and how we are moving forward in our societies. Absolutely. And, you know, you, uh, talking about these these movements, you know, of course, the most recent movements that come to my memory um, are the Me Too movement and then the Black Lives Matter movement. But even further than that, you know, um, misinformation, right? Um, I remember I was scrolling through Twitter, um, whenever the COVID-19 pandemic was picking up and it was, it was getting worse and worse and worse. Um, I went to retweet something. I was on Twitter and before I retweeted it, and I, I don't even remember what the article was. It said, have you read the article? Have you, have you looked at the article? Have you read what is in the article? Do you endorse the information in the article? If not, don't like it literally came up with an alert for me, which I've before the COVID-19 pandemic that had, I had never seen that before 
in my life. So as far as like misinformation and things like that go, how do you think the power of social media has really um, changed that? That's a, that's a very good, very, very, very good point, Hannah, you are raising because we are studying misinformation a lot these days. A um, couple of things we need to keep in mind. Social media or these digital tools of communicative technology in general, they are double-edged sword. So they can be very powerful in helping us and they can be very powerful in, in hurting us, right? We have seen in our recent elections or like elections before recent elections and stuff um, that there was so much controversy when other countries were actually trying to manipulate um, our, our political system. Uh, and the reason U.S. is an amazing country uh, as compared to the rest of the world is its democratic uh, power. But if the institution, if the democratic institution gets threatened because of the misinformation, intentional misinformation or unintentional, then this is, this is a point of concern, right? So I totally agree. So misinformation was a big problem, still is a very big problem. At some point, I had started losing hope in these technologies just because of these because many people actually they they listened to all those all those fake kind of like uh, medical advices and many people ended ended up dying like some people just just drank uh, fish cleaning agents or something i don't know in arizona i feel sorry for that couple so but but the point is they probably were following social media right so we saw like people actually they can die so to me here I am, at least um, based on my recent research, to me, there is it's a point of concern. So technology is a problem. And at the same time, technology is a solution, right? So when Twitter bots, for example, started creating problems and started like demonizing one political party uh, over the other or vice versa, and they were trying to many Twitter bots were trying to manipulate the political debate in our country, in Pakistan, and in several other countries. Um, new AI versions of like anti-Twitter bots were launched at the same time. So one part of the one portion of the technology was part of the problem. Another part of the technology was part of the solution. Who was trying to counter it? Right. So like for example, when you said like you were you were trying to share an article on Twitter. It was not a human being who was asking you, have you read the article? It was the technology. It was the designed software to minimize misinformation, spread of misinformation. And now, like, there are so many truthometers, University of Southern California and so many other universities. They have, they have started, like, several other softwares. Uh, right now, on top of my head, I cannot recall their precise names, but I'm more than happy to provide those. And all of those softwares are basically dedicated to, to, to filter anything that's not true and then fact check those things and flag any information that's not, that's not true. So that's the one way. But all of this is very sophisticated technology at this point and not easily available, right? Uh, when we are talking about mis misinformation, I'm not even like, well, I'm worried for myself. I, I would be honest. I, once I ended up sharing an article because I thought that was a, a new NY Times article and somebody had used NY Times and, and, and put, a, put an article uh, um, 
which was fake article right so i i once i like being a professor who studies social media if i can get trapped anyone can get trapped. but i'm more worried about our younger generations who just uh, i remember like once i assigned um, a, a small like news story and asked my students to to cite all these references like they wherever they are using the information one particular student used twitter and facebook as two of uh, these or her like credible resources that was bothersome to me right so since then i started adding that in my in my uh, syllabus that like guys like this this is not credible source of information right and like you find something on on social media you need to counter check you need to find the the original source and stuff i'm worried for our younger generations because they can get trapped into misinformation quickly uh, than 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 some like you know uh, more senior people so yeah it's a problem um, uh, hana the only answer to this problem is that we need to develop and design more sophisticated technologies which are actually happening and those technologies should be able to detect those like these are those web sniffers they should be able to sniff if there is any problem or if there is any any issue and and should be able to 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 you know counter that misinformation as it will be a struggle but at the same time artificial intelligence is getting like smarter to an extent that we should not even call it artificial anymore right so it's like yeah it's yeah it's becoming more real intelligence than artificial uh so it's like it's going to aid human beings uh, ability to counter misinformation uh but it's still a long path to go so much research is good news is so much research is already being done in this area and the good news is that so many uh organizations including like of course not only news organizations including like social media giants uh and that's why like facebook um, i will i will refrain from from saying like what facebook's role was but facebook at least realized that now they need to rebrand themselves using meta right so i'm sure like there is a re- realization there and i'm sure twitter has already been proactively uh, working hard on this one uh, that also like takes us to another separate debate about freedom of expression i don't want to jump in there first but like you, you know it's a complicated situation yeah it's it's very complicated and i'm i'm just thinking about this i'm a mom i have two kids um you know and they're you know one is almost college age and you know you made a very good point about you know um you know fact checking and and misinformation but like i just kind of wanted to tie a few things in that you mentioned earlier about you know you, you and your buddies um sitting around and talking about journalism and how each of you guys had a different approach to each story right and so i think i'm i'm just thinking about how we as humans all have our own biases right and we have our own experiences that contribute to the way we tell a story and and the same thing is is kind of happening on on social media call it misinformation to the person who's putting it out there it's not misinformation right it's it's the, their truth um and so this kind of it's kind of two questions i have because i'm i'm thinking about my kids right and how do we how do we uh really teach them how to look for misinformation i realize there's a lot of good technology out there that's that's helping with that but but how do we as a society protect the society from it because there's there's this misinformation is is so detrimental to to society as a whole 
Yeah, that's that's a Melissa. That's a great point. I I usually tell my my friends, particularly like my family who are parents. I tell them like we need to first acknowledge that our younger generations are growing up very differently than we did. Right? I did not. I did not grow up with a tablet in my hand or smartphone in my hand. I did not grow up with any, I don't have any memories. I, of course, there was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. There was no Reddit. There was no Snapchat. There was no other like, et cetera, right? So, and that's why like my parents focused more on, for example, dinner table manners, how to sit on the table, how to behave, have to make sure like you wash your hands and stuff, right? All of those table manners that we teach our kids. Because they acknowledged the fact that these table manners are going to define me as a, as a refined person over the years. Likewise, we should treat social media and digital media or any emerging media technologies that this is part and parcel of our younger generation's lives. And as parents, it's our responsibility if we are if we are teaching them table manners, if we are teaching them like uh, other kind of like manners, this should be part of the same kind of technique, right, for us. Uh, so they need to start learning about those manners from the very first day they start holding those tablets in their hands, right? And that's how like I believe once we inculcate those basic manners, things will start getting better things will start going in the right direction. The problem right now is majority of our parents themselves don't know more about social media. They don't know more, more about internet. Even like when we look at Facebook, even if they have Facebook accounts, they don't even know how complex Facebook as, as a website it is now. It's no longer just a platform to share our DPs and stuff. So much more complex. Facebook is a, one of the biggest realities in terms of like economy like look at the facebook my market icon and how much how much um kind of like business is taking place from facebook market and there are spammers over there as well at the same time right and then facebook at the same time has so many opportunities to create new and more folders for yourselves dedicated to certain things me as a researcher I have like 10 different folders. One says like artificial intelligence research. The other one says like teaching materials. The third one says like job openings, for example, right? So all of those. And then I, I kind of like, uh, I run my Facebook very differently, I'm sure, as compared to like many of my peers. Part of the reason, because I knew like what kind of potential Facebook gives me. But if I have a kid, I would teach him or her like, Honey, you can use this tool, but these are those amazing things that you should be rather focusing on. Biggest problem, we cannot stop them from using these things, right? Because I have seen many parents, they just totally reject it. And that starts creating more problems to me because there is a like kind of vacuum or if, if, if people think, if younger generations think that is prohibited, let me put it that way. I remember like once I was a, I was a pretty young kid and there was an article in in one of the newspapers like it was like a kids section uh magazine and like the title of that article was like 
be warned do not read it and the first ever article i wanted to read that was the same article right so and that's exactly that's how human being functions right works so and that's how i would say like we should not say uh, uh, we should not reject this powerful medium rather we have to learn first those basic table manners or social media manners and make sure that we teach those manners to our younger generations that so, is yeah that is such a great way to put that and i i'm going to take that with me for the rest of my life but um i i have uh, one last um question and a point that i would like you to expand on because you're exactly right um social media is here um our youth are exposed to it pretty much from the day that they're born what happens whenever you're born you post a pic of your <laughs> child on your social media account so they they're growing up with it completely different than what from where we grew up with it so um, one of the, some of the positives that I think come from social media or that is associated with social media, particularly not really Twitter and just sharing your thoughts or sharing your opinions, but it's maintaining relationships, right? You meet someone, you add them on Facebook, you follow them on Instagram or whatever. So although it gives us, it, it provides um a way for us to keep in touch with people and um, and really connect with people from across the city, across the state, across the world. It also, as we you know, we kind of talked about a little earlier, it destroys relationships, right? So, so social media in in the perspective of uh, having a relationship, connecting with people, and then also maintaining and ultimately sometimes destroying relationships with people. Can you uh, expand on that a little bit more and just the effect that social media has positive and negatively on relationships with people from all across the world? Right. I have two amazing stories to tell. One story is from my personal life. The other story is my conversation with one of my former students at uh, University of Texas at Tyler. So first story, like, as I told you, like, my parents migrated from India. And uh, more than half of my family is still in India. Uh, because of, like, um, rivalry between Pakistan and India for so many reasons, uh, my parents could never go back to visit their families. I could never meet my first cousins who still live in India. and. Uh, it was like we just knew like as as if like two families like got separated by just a random wall that somebody created right over o- overnight so that was that was a humanitarian dilemma but once i i found my cousins on facebook and i ended up inviting them and we got reunited via social media right so that's one version of the story so i know i know that like what they are doing in their lives. I can see pictures of their kids. I can see their accomplishments. I can see like everything. So I feel like I'm so much connected. So social media gave me the opportunity to cross all those barriers, physical barriers, and then be able to be part of my family again, right? So, and then my mom and my dad were very happy to to reconnect with their, with their, with their, uh, with their first cousins and like, uh, 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 with their brothers, in fact, like some of their brothers left over there. So that's a that's a that's a very positive side of the story. So now the negative side of the story. I was back in University of Texas at Tyler, where that was my first job, by the way, joining as an ac- academic person after my doctorate. 
I was conducting my students' interviews for like Snapchat and relationship development. So like I, I was studying Snapchat as a social media and how it basically contributes to, 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 to relationships uh, among younger generations. So one of my former students, I will definitely not use their names and stuff, right? She, while she, while she was responding to my questions, she said like, yeah, I was madly in love with whosoever was the name of, of her boyfriend. And she said like, we used to Snapchat around 20 times or 30 times a day. And then it kept increasing. The more we Snapchatted, like even when they were like apart in their own homes, the more we felt that our relationship is getting stronger, right? So Snapchat was the reason, like responding on Snapchat was the reason that their relationship. So every every time the next day they would meet on campus, they felt like a little bit more closer because they were spending time on Snapchat to to talk to each other and and sending like uh, some some very very personal kind of pictures to each other, right? It, it was also showing their level of trust in them. At some point, she said, like, she sent her, uh, um, she sent her, like, a picture in which, like, it was, like, it could only be shared with a boyfriend, right? And he never commented on it. So she started getting worried. So, and then she s sent a message, everything is okay. He, again, never commented on it. And she said, like, that's how, like, she stops that interview and still fresh on my mind. She says, then I knew that this relationship is over. So no response on social media was a very strong response. How many times it used to happen in our real life scenarios? If there has to be a breakup, breakup had a different way of, like, like people would at least come in front of each other and tell them on their in uh, right on their faces that this relationship is over but in that case it was this relationship was over just because the other person stopped responding on social media right so and that was a snapchat so basically i ended up publishing two articles that like social media is, re is redefining the overall philosophy of human relationships it's literally redefining. So for example, like, so that's like one version of relationship, another version of relationship. I talked to you, like how I could reconnect with my, with my separated families. But the third version of relationship, now people use the term every time I can friend you, I can unfriend you. How many times in real life we can like go to our schools, just, just recall our memories from our childhood. And we, we could tell like, if we disagree with a friend or if we have a, if we get into an argument with a friend, and we, we raise our finger and tell them, like, hey, I am friend you. And plus, like, research shows no matter how hard you work, maximum friends you can have at one point in time is not less than, is, is not more than 70. And even, like, to have 70 friends, you have to work super hard, right, to retain those friends in real-life situation. But now some people, like, on Facebook, for example, they have 5,000 people and they still call them friends. Right. So definitely the, the definition of what it means to be a friend, what it means to not to be in that circle of friends is changing. Right. Uh, also, like uh, the intimate relationships between between uh, 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 some like boyfriends and girlfriends, it's also changing super quickly. 
and uh, social media is a is a big part uh, or big player in in redefining uh, relationship theories. In fact, like really, uh, in my discipline, like there is so much work that's being done uh, about like human relationships and stuff. Uh, so, like on social media, no response. It's a very strong response. Uh, in real life. Uh, no response is definitely not a strong response. No response means no response, right? But but on social media, it's very different. Um, I just, uh, I wish if I had like more knowledge about where it's going to take us eventually, um, I would be very happy to share. But uh, my observations are from my classroom culture. Uh, at some point, I asked my students not to use their smartphones. Uh, I thought like they will be rather more engaged uh, in the classroom discussions, and I failed terribly. And once I realized, I changed my strategy. I told my students, "Hey, you guys are welcome to use smartphones." And rather, I started learning different tools where I would just post a quiz on the that 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 pops up on their smartphone screen, and like they were like so much more engaged. In a way, like I have to relearn communication in order to keep in touch with them. Yeah. And, and just from the, the examples that, that you gave um, about this um, young woman and the relationship on Snapchat, it's almost like a whole other set of rules for being on social media and the relationships that you have on social media versus the real life rules that, that we follow. Exactly. Yeah, it's fascinating. And things are changing super quickly now. Because right now, we are talking about social media, right? Because it's pretty much prevalent in our society. But in fact, like the communication mode is changing to the next level now. Uh, there is, There will be, there. I can already see an end to this term social media within the next three or four years. There will be new worries for us down the road. And that's where it connects us to like the whole idea of artificial intelligence or uh, or like and that's why i'm saying like even artificial word is is a disservice cuz cuz technology is moving so fast cuz we are literally entering in metaverse and that's the reason like facebook chose this name cuz in in future like even what we browse will be like a 3d 3d kind of like dimensional reality for us where are where are younger generations once they are trying to find something read something they feel like they are immersed in a virtual world. So this immersiveness will also change the way social media is being practiced today. It will also like totally, it will be a different experience. And plus wearable technologies are changing things. Um, so there are like, of course, like uh, one very much uh, existing reality is uh, Microsoft HoloLens. For example, there are different versions and I believe like it will also affect um, education sector where we can give those Microsoft HoloLens kind of technologies to our students who can wear those technologies and their professor, their professor in its avatar as, as a form of an avatar can actually be walking in their bedroom and they're taking the class over there, right? So it's, it's happening right now. Even like smartphones are testing those avatars. When we communicate right now, like Hannah, Melissa, Rauf, three of us can see each other via this, these three screen tabs. But what if my avatar is walking 
right next to you guys and your avatar is walking right next to me the same same like rever talk would carry a very different kind of like uh reality along with it right and that's where like that's where the social media that's where the artificial intelligence that's where all of these technologies are headed um i was the other day i was talking to a group of my students um i, I forgot the name of that lens it's a smart smart lens you just uh, you you put that lens on on your like just like it's just a it's, it's a tiny lens just like uh, we put a lens right in our eyes contact right? lens so like what a contact lens all those lenses guys contact lens yes 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 thank you yeah so that you put that contact lens and the whole words lighten up right in front of you this contact lens has uh, uh, has gps in it it has like it pops up in your email it has so many other things and even if somebody has like is is visually impaired once they wear those lenses that that entire lens lighten up their path we are literally entering into immersive reality now so this virtual reality the next phase of virtual reality so the corporates effort is to make sure that physical reality gets merged with virtual reality so that we can name it a totally different version of reality and those boundaries that exist between physical versus virtual in our mind they will start getting blurred to an extent that we will forget what is real versus what is virtual what is physical versus what is virtual yeah yeah i can totally see how we will become a society where the virtual is reality where it is real we like you said it's not called virtual anymore because your brain actually thinks that it is real so this is like wow this this whole conversation <laughs> has totally blown my mind you have like so um enlightened us in in so many ways and i so appreciate you know you you being here and being a part of this um i i could probably talk to you for another several hours and still <laughs> and still not get enough of this so but I truly do appreciate having you um having you be a part of of Revo Talk today. Thank you very much Melissa. Thank you so much Hannah. I I thoroughly enjoyed this this discussion. Uh, I really appreciate it and it's such a wonderful platform. Um I'm just so happy that that I was uh, I was among those first ever speakers, right? So uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's uh, it's great. Yes. Thank you very much. No, we are so honored. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh my god, Melissa, I could have talked to him for hours and hours. I just had so many questions. I just wanted to keep asking his opinion and getting his input on like different things regarding social media because that's that's just insane. Um I can't wait to have him back on the show. I'll say that oh, right no. now. Yeah. No, we're we're going to we're going <laughs> to we're definitely going to have him back cuz like I'm making a list. But um something and again like I like I just said at the end of the episode that I'm probably going to take with me forever is his analogy on um table manners right like you are you you are te- like that is one of the first things that you teach your kids whenever they start uh eating eating at the table whenever you, they start going out to eat with you you teach them the table manners and we have to be that way with social media now this is something that generations before us never really had to deal with never really had to encounter but social media is there um we see it every day um it's incorporated into everything that we do everything that our kids do so you know 
from your perspective, Melissa, whenever you look at parenting, how how do you approach that? You know, oh my gosh, like this is such an, you know, interesting thought, right? You know, when, when he mentioned table manners, it was just like, wow, you know what? It's so true. You know, we really do need to be teaching our, our kids this because essentially, you know, I, I, I see babies with phones, you know, and, and they're, you know, they're, they're not walking even they're, they're in their strollers, you know, watching YouTube videos. And, and I have a young niece, she's four years old and I see her, you know, watching YouTube and things like that. And, and of course I have my own kids. And, and so I would say like for me in, in my generation, because, um, I didn't grow up necessarily with technology. So I didn't, I've, I've, I'm having to learn what these table manners, so to speak, are as, as we, as we go, you know, and, and so, um, that, that's, that's a challenge, I think, for, for all parents, you know, probably my age and older and, and maybe even younger than me. It, what exactly are the digital manners that we should be teaching, you know, our children? And, and is that even an exhaustive list if we made a list? And is it changing tomorrow? Because as the technology continues to grow and change, then, then the manners need to grow and change. So it's not even, it's not even just learning table manners once, right? You can learn those once and it's pretty much the same every time you sit down to eat a meal, right? But, but, but with this, it's kind of like, well, today here's, here's the manners and tomorrow here's the manners and they're different. And, and even, even even if I'm thinking about, it's it's almost like a, a, a another language. I mean, we have emojis, we have, you know, new abbreviations that that weren't there before. And are you using them correctly? You, you know, all of all of these things, you know, go into uh, into this whole definition of digital manners. No, you're exactly right. And going back to your point about it moving so quickly, it's changing every single day. I mean, Melissa, you and I are working in software and we're in development right now. Something is changing every single day in this development. And you know, it's not social media, but it is technology and it is software. And so every single day we log on to these meetings and we're meeting with developers something else has changed. Something else is new. And it, it's at this point, it's day to day, right? Yeah. Every, every day it's, it's something new every day. There's a new idea. There's a new thought. And this is just with, with us on the RevoTrack team coming up with new ideas and new thoughts. But let's think about like digitally and with these digital manners and, and all of the social media that exists out there there's a new idea, a new thought every second, probably multiple new ideas and new thoughts and new ways of doing things every single second. So, you know, exponentially, you, you know, it's, it's moving exponentially faster in, in that world because it's compounded by everyone who, who is contributing to, um, to the, the digital movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, kind of moving back to social media, um, I, whenever I think about social media, I think about, of course, Twitter. Um, the first thing, honestly, that comes to mind is Facebook. That is pretty, that's, that's the one platform I think is pretty universal. Like, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it's, it's not just with, 
within generations. Um, my, my grandmother's on, on Facebook and she's always sharing things and she always posting things. And so I think it's also just completely changed and is changing every single day, our perception of people. Um, as users of social media, we think that we can control that. And I was, I was just talking to our producer, Blake, um, earlier today about this, you know, we can control other people's perceptions of us by number one, controlling what we post. Like we, we decide exactly what we post. Um, even though it may not be our true opinion or it may not be and not really reflect exactly what we believe we want it to. So we can control that something else, like with photos, with pictures, um, my, and this is just so sad, you know, uh, I have a, um, 14 year old, uh, cousin who, um, every, every time that she posts something, she alters something on her face and it just breaks my heart. But, but it's because we believe that we can control that perception. Right. And so what has been your experience with that? Cause it's just, it's, it's sad <laughs> and, and, and it's overwhelming sometimes to think about. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. Um, and, and, and honestly, that's, it is, it is sad to think that, you know, we have to portray ourselves in a certain way to the world. Um, and, 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 and I, and I, and I think, you know, we, we all kind of have always done that and social media has just made it, um, that much easier, right? So, um, you know, before we had social media, we would, you know, get up and we put on our makeup as, as females and, you know, make sure we look nice and before we go out and, and do that. So in a way we were altering our perception of, or trying to alter, you know, the perception that, that everyone else had of us. Um, but, but now it's to the point where we can digitally alter what we look like. So, um, you know, I don't even have to apply any makeup. I can have the phone do it for me, you know? And, and so (laughs) it's, it's, it's interesting how, how it has evolved in terms of how we, how we show up in order to, uh, show up to the world basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like going back to our first point, you know, whenever we are teaching our kids and teaching, um, and honestly, you know, this conversation has been kind of focused, um, more around kids and these kids that are growing up in the social media, um, I guess, or, or kids that are just growing up with social media. But I also think about, um, the older generation who did not grow up with it. It came into their lives the same time that it came into mine, you know, as, I was growing up, they can learn some table manners too. It's, you know what I mean? <laughs> For sure. Like I said, you know, I, I don't know what all the table manners are, but I am sure that that there is a baseline of, of etiquette that definitely could be um, a, a universal, you know, even if it's not taught, it's a universal baseline of like, hey, how should you act as a person, you know? Um, as a human being, how should you show up, whether it's on social media or in person? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And especially coming out of this pandemic, whenever we are, um, we were on Zoom meetings, we were on uh, phone conferences and things like that. I think that that's going to be really important um, to think about moving forward. So. Yeah. And absolutely. Just to, you know, just to comment on your point about the Zoom meetings. I mean, even that, like, how did we, how did we present ourselves? You know, we put on a nice shirt and made sure our hair looked good for the camera, but you know what? We were wearing sweatpants, you know, like we were still halfway in our pajamas. So, you know, like even, even at that has, 
the pandemic has is really you know changed and altered the way that that we that we live and and view ourselves so yeah and you know the first thing that I did after that zoom call or that zoom meeting was take that nice top off throw my hair up (laughs) and put my big t-shirt back on again so but yeah Well, thanks again for joining us for this episode of RevoTalk, the podcast from RevoTrek Resource Management Systems. If you liked what you heard today, we have an amazing list of guests that we're excited for y'all to hear from. So follow RevoTalk so you never miss a new episode. Also feel free to follow us on social media. We are on all of the major platforms under RevoTrek Resource Management Systems. Until then, see you next time. Bye.